TED Audio Collective. What do rockers become when they grow up? If you're Jenny Toomey, the former frontwoman of the band Tsunami and founder of the record label Simple Machines, you go on to work for one of the richest philanthropies in the world, and you give away money to protect the internet. You know, it all makes a lot of sense to me, but most people will say it's kind of a weird uh, trajectory. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and this is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of business and work. And on this episode, Jenny Toomey, how the 90s punk rock scene in Washington, D.C. shaped her into one of the most influential people working behind the scenes on all the biggest tech issues today, issues that you probably read about in the headlines this morning. A lot of bank shots for me, but you know, there's a through way for me in all this work. Jenny heads up the tech and society program at the Ford Foundation, one of the wealthiest philanthropies in the world with a $13 billion endowment. She funds programs and people who are trying to make sure all things digital get built and governed in ways that, well, in ways that don't destroy our democracy. Some of those people have been here on the show. Journalist Julia Angwin, cryptographer Bruce Schneier, Jenny also partners with Mozilla, whose Mark Sermon was here on the show a couple months back. Because there's this growing tech and society and policy and equity counterculture. And Jenny is definitely one of its ringleaders. Which actually does make sense. So Jenny's roots are in music. In her 20s, she was in lots of bands and a big part of that counterculture in D.C., And in the 2000s, she became an advocate for musicians, helping found the Future of Music Coalition, testifying before Congress, the FCC, about how tech was making it impossible for musicians to retain the rights to their music and their livelihood. And then she went to the Ford Foundation to help make sure the Internet is open, accessible, and safe, that it doesn't discriminate against people who don't have the privileges that she did growing up. Up close, Jenny's career looks like lots of zigs and zags with some very sharp turns. But pull back and the through line is remarkable. And it just goes to show that if you keep working towards what you believe in, your career can come together in ways you could never predict. You're going to hear Jenny's fascinating story and lots of music when we come back in just a sec. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Well, my name is Jenny Toomey, and I'm the International Director of Technology and Society at the Ford Foundation. 
And I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and this is ZigZag. So this episode is going to sound a little different than usual, less of me talking and more music. Because music is what propelled Jenny Toomey forward. In the mid-90s, she just graduated from college. She was on the Washington, D.C. music scene, playing in various bands and running a record label, Simple Machines. She was trying to change the way the music industry worked. But even so, Jenny's motto was that personal pleasure and fun should be a measure of her success. It's always one of my personal tenets. When I was telling you that I think a lot of people think my trajectory is kind of weird, like how did someone who was a punk rocker with a philosophy degree end up, you know, being a funder on internet policy or global internet policy or whatever. A lot of it's just I'm always curious about things and I'm always curious about systems and I'm always curious about fairness. So, And I came from this community that was very much about like, if you don't like the system, build a corollary one, build one that competes. And think about how having competing systems allows people to have different choices. And I, and I think even that thing about personal pleasure, like I have privilege, you know, I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I was an activist, and there was a really strong political punk scene in D.C., which really inspired me. And the folks that designed and originated and built a lot of that scene were just about three years older than me, which is like the perfect amount of older to just completely transform and inspire your lives. Um, so people like, you know, the folks who ran Discord Records and and then all the folks that booked the Black Cap and DC Space and the 930 Club and all of these folks. And it was a very small scene, very insular and very political. And my partner, Kristen Thompson, and I, who ran the record label Simple Machines and was, we were in a band called Tsunami together. I got into bands to be part of that scene, and no one was going to put out our records because we weren't that great, but all the folks there who were putting out records taught us how to put out records, and we put out a guide to putting out records. I've always been really interested in how do you build ethics into the systems, right? Discord records who inspired us were, you know, well-known for, you know, only playing for less than X amount of money in the cities they played in, only playing benefit shows in D.C. and always giving money to causes and building a sort of ethical structure into the system of how they did their work. And so that's always been a part of all of this. So, And then it was really interesting because that was sort of at the moment when some of the punk bands that had been in the, I don't know, alternative culture, the alternate universe, became super, super famous. And then suddenly these two kind of parallel worlds, the sort of major label world and the independent world, crashed into one another. Nirvana was the one that sort of changed everything, you know. But like, and when you think about that, Dave Grohl from Nirvana had been in Scream, the little band that could, that we all loved in D.C., who were, you know, a monster of D.C., but not a major label thing. So, like, all these kind of secret parallel economy suddenly became cannibalized by all the major labels. And then it sort of changed the stakes for everything, whereas, like, beforehand, you know, you could put out a record and sell 3,000 of them and everybody could make enough money to put the next record out. <laughs> and so suddenly now you need, like, publicists and you had to pay for promo and everybody wanted to get on the ma- major radio and all of this stuff. And it just sort of changed the climate completely. Back then in D.C., like, living in Arlington was really, really cheap. I think I paid, like, $300 a month. 
at the highest for a room in a group house. I liked all the people I lived with for the most part. They were all super curious, interesting people who were doing arts. And in that kind of environment where all of your attention is around something other than money, it creates this kind of dif different possibility of creativity and happiness that's, than if you're just being measured based on, you know, more material things. And again, that was a model of the DC scene. Like, there's a lot of, you know, famous songs by famous bands that make it really clear, you know, you are not what you own. And we all felt that pretty, pretty clearly, at least at that stage. That's, I think, one of the reasons why the whole major artists getting signed to major labels and independent labels being cannibalized all felt so... Scary's not the right word, but like it felt almost like a forest fire in some ways mm. because it didn't just undermine or change the stakes. It kind of made you question fundamental values. Mm. Like, oh, I always thought this was more important, but I guess I was just stupid and naive. <laughs> you know. And we just decided that wasn't for us. So we mm. had a huge party and we closed our record label down and I went to work at the Washington Post. And at the Post, I had this amazing thing, which was a really fast internet connection. So like all of these sort of delicious, interesting things that were part of my other life were showing up in this internet space. We put out like 70 releases over the course of the seven or so years we had the label. So all these people were coming to us saying, you know, we want to put your records out on our internet. And as I said before, you know, we, we did this guide to putting out records because we didn't think every single person who wanted to put out a record would have to reinvent the wheel. Like there was a basic recipe and people could use it. So we thought, well, let's see if there's a basic recipe for what's the right thing to do in the internet environment because all of our friends who run Merge Records or Kill Rock Stars or, you know, Thrill Jockey are all going to have to make decisions about whether they want to put their records on X website. And there were so many variables, like there were some websites that would let you own your rights and other ones that you would have to sign away your rights. And there were ones that would encrypt the music so theoretically people wouldn't be able to steal it or listen to it without paying for it. There are people who allowed you to figure out your own price. So there's all these variables. And we thought, all right, let's just do what Consumer Reports does and let's just like put a grid together and let's put like green and red check marks for like, okay, they give you this right, so we think that's good. And But, you know, you don't get to renegotiate your price, so that's bad or whatever. And we were trying to figure out what good and bad was and we were interviewing all the sites. And there was like 60 of them. And just as it was all coming together, suddenly the bubble began to burst. And so companies were going out of business and companies were being purchased by other companies. We realized, oh God, all bets are off. There's no real clear set of recommendations we can make to anyone because the one who seems the most like your ally actually has just been purchased by the one who might be the most commensurate with the kinds of major labels we were building our systems to compete with. So we started Future of Music Coalition at that point, which was, we called it a think tank, but it was basically an attempt to try to complexify the conversation because at that moment, the major labels generally had mascot artists who really believed in maximalist copyright. Like, you can't do anything to my music without my permission. And then the tech companies had the minimalist ones who were like, everything can be free and you can rip mix burn and whatever. And we didn't think it was wrong for artists to think either of those things. They should have choices. And it was fascinating for me because like, Coming up from an alternative culture, like I don't know if 
any of you out there who've lived in alternative cultures, whether it's like an arts community or, you know, maybe you were super focused on athletics or something like that. And it can become very insular. And it was a really interesting moment because I'd come from like 15 years of being in that kind of an insular culture, which is lovely, to a place where I actually had to build a coalition with lawyers and people who worked at major labels and people who worked in politics on the Hill, the kinds of people who would determine what the copyright laws would be. Basically, the way we survived is a combination of we would do a big event every year mm-hmm. and a lot of volunteer hours. You know, Hag Shockley and Chuck D were supportive and came many times. Sandy Perlman, I'm trying to think who else. We had Patty Smith one year, lots of people. It's funny, I haven't thought about future music in such a long time. But yeah, we'd always get people who really disagreed with each other about fundamental principles of about what was happening at that moment, but who had really compelling arguments. Because our sense was, if you get the smartest people to argue in public in front of something, you get a better sense of where the answer will be. Because people love musicians, and like people who have real relationships with their artists and artists who have real relationships with their fans, you know, they'll buy the same record six times. You know, how many times have I bought Joni Mitchell's Blue Record? In what, how many formats over the years? And, and I'm more than happy to do it as long as she's getting some of the money from it, you know. So we became much more interested in those kinds of questions and like what were these alternative models and how are people creating new relationships that um, intermediated these kinds of systems that were very expensive and that could be captured by payola and other kinds of stuff. So, I mean, it was a fascinating, fascinating time. Okay, in a minute, how Jenny the Rocker turned music rights advocate made another turn in her career to an even bigger stage. Zigzag. We'll be right back. We're back. I'm Anoush. This is Zigzag. And Jenny Toomey, the former front woman for Tsunami and a record producer turned music rights activist, eventually decided to get a job. But not just any job. The Ford Foundation recruited her to work in the media and cultural policy department. But Jenny had other ideas, as she told the president of the foundation. She wanted to create a new department, one focused on Internet policy, how the flow of information, ideas, and of course music, would work in this increasingly connected era. It was the late 2000s, and one of the biggest issues was net neutrality. And so who did Jenny get to testify on Capitol Hill? Her musician friends, like the lead singer of OK Go, Damien Kulash. Hi, um, I'm Damien. I'm Andy. We are in the rock band OK Go, and we are also in the House Judiciary Committee room, um, which is like not a place that normally hosts rock bands. Um, so everyone, I, I hope that you will support the uh, the bill in the House, which is HR 5353. 53. 53. There you go, HR 5353. We were trying to figure out, like, well, the most basic one was net neutrality, which was basically saying, you know, can the person who owns the pipe determine whether certain ideas and certain information flow faster and easier across the pipe. Our argument was if the people who own the pipe are allowed to do that, they will 
have an inevitable pressure to monetize that, which means that people with money will go faster and people without money will go slower. And then there's all sorts of political concerns around censoring ideas you don't like, raising up ideas that are financially or politically beneficial to you. And so we spent lots and lots of time focused on net neutrality because our sense was if there's not a neutral spine to everything, then it raises questions about whether you can ever have a fair playing field for ideas or, you know, or commerce or anything. I'm here today representing the Future of Music Coalition's Rock the Net campaign. There are 800 other bands who have signed up with us in the last year and 125 labels who are on board. Um, There really is some consensus here that net neutrality is good for music and good for musicians. It's it's allowed us to, um, to innovate and to create in ways that just were never possible before. Well, Damien is a very, uh, he's a very charismatic dude and super smart and super curious and a lot of heart. We needed artists to say, like, this is actually going to have real implications. I know some people criticize artists for taking positions on things other than music, but I really do think that artists have a lot of standing to talk about this internet infrastructure mm-hmm. because, frankly, it is the the road on which they connect to their fans. And is this going to be a toll road or is this going to be like a big, wonderful open road that everybody can find each other on? So, of course, like the obvious thing that came up after net neutrality or that was blowing up the crazy was all the privacy issues, right? So that those all became very apparent. Well, we, we knew they were happening, but it was hard to make an argument to people that they should care about them. It, it wasn't a bread and butter issue for them. And it was funny, we would do focus groups and we'd say like, you know, does it, you know, do you think anybody's looking at what you're doing on your phone? <laughs> and, and they'd say, well, you know, I get this ad every once in a while for sneakers when I was looking for sneakers, but, you know, that's okay. I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, if I'm shopping for sneakers, maybe I want to know about sneakers or something. Like, there was, there was this kind of lack of any sort of agency or full understanding about what kinds of rules could be in place here. And I think that's one of the sad things about technology is that it makes such brilliant people feel so stupid that they kind of give up. You know, so few of the the major human rights organizations have recruited and hired technologists and people with technical expertise to actually help them think about, okay, so, you know, how are these surveillance tools amplifying the kind of inequality we fought before? And a lot of it's because I think, you know, once you've become the head of a a major organization, once you've become a senator, once you've become the head of a, an NGO uh, or the head of a foundation, you feel like you've kind of earned the right not to feel stupid. Now, <laughs> not all of those, not all heads of foundations feel that way. I work for a really amazing, super curious, and both really, I want to say, confident, but doesn't need to be the smartest person in the room guy, Durham Walker. And, you know, people who can say, I'm super curious about this. I think this could be really, really terrible or really, really helpful, but I don't fully understand it. And I'm really confident to be in the room with people much smarter than me who can help me think about this. Like, those are the kinds of leaders that will survive the next 20 years. So, like, whether that's facial recognition software and bias in that, whether that's what are the standards for body-worn cameras for Mm -hmm. police. I think the real opportunities are these kinds of intersections where you take people with deep legal policy community expertise, and you bring people with deep technology expertise. So we have technologists that now sit in most of the program areas in the New York office, and this means when we're doing criminal justice issues or working on the census, there's going to be someone in that team who's thinking about, okay, how is disinformation going to impact the census? 
I think one enormous opportunity is that we've got lots and lots of engineers who've made money, who had spent a long time thinking that technology was always going to do only good. And there are facts on the table that say that that is not true. And so the scales have come off the eyes and people are thinking about what they can do. And so that'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Can we replicate that moment where these people with these really important skill sets can find a way to come back and serve the public environment? What I wish is that some of the companies who are most implicated in creating some of the bigger challenges, think of them as like data oil spills across our democracy or whatever. I wish that there was some way that those companies could put enormous amounts of funds into a neutral fund that would fund institutions that would solve these problems. I mean, like a historic way that people have done that is like, you know, BP has an oil spill, BP gets sued, a fund is set up, and theoretically those funds are used to remediate the harm that came out of it. Some of these major companies have created all sorts of other problems, like housing in Silicon Valley and in San Francisco. Like, these people really should put lots and lots and lots and lots of money into figuring out how do you solve the problem of the housing crisis that they've created. It's also very early days. I mean, you know, I met with one of the heads of one of these new foundations that's coming out of the New Wealth yesterday for half an hour, and they're very interested in solving some problems that we really care about, and it would be great if they helped us to solve them because we're a social justice foundation. We're not a private corporation. There are pain points that they understand that we don't. But part of it's how do we bring that kind of ethical mindset into the private sector as mm. well? Mm -hmm. You know, Ford has made enormous mistakes in our 80-plus years. And so I'm not going to get out there and say, you're bad, you're the best model, whatever. I mean, I think people need to be transparent and accountable. I really do think that the buck should stop with some of the companies that have created, either willingly or unwittingly, systems that we're living with right now that are very difficult, that they should be responsible for helping to solve the problems. It's incredibly hard. And, you know, it's an incredibly privileged job to be able to be a funder. I think no one should be a funder who hasn't had to beg money beforehand. It puts you in the right mind frame to understand the power dynamics of it. For me, I, I had the double benefit of both having to beg money for seven years for Future Music Coalition and also that I ran a record label and I had to say no a lot. It's like I, I think a lot of people regret not doing something they haven't done, but if they've done it, they don't regret not doing it. Like I, I had a whole lot of music time, and I feel like the work that I do at Ford is just as interesting as the starting the label, running the label. It's like, it feels very much the same kind of interesting. It's great to get older and be more forgiving and less moralistic about these kinds of things. Jenny Toomey of the Ford Foundation and the band Tsunami, among others. Her more recent solo stuff, some of which you heard in the second half of the show, is so good, too. Thank you, Jenny, for granting us permission to use it here on ZigZag and telling your story and for sharing how you held on to what some might say were idealistic beliefs, but how you turned them into a career that's all about taking pragmatic action. And, you know, I think that's what I learned from Jenny's zigzagging adventures with her guitar and without, that it's not 
naive to hold on to your ideals. You just have to be open to expressing them in different ways as you get older. Okay, so lovely listeners, we want to learn something about you. We are working on an upcoming episode about power couples. How couples, old and young, gay and straight, where both partners have careers, how do they make it work? What do they struggle with now that all genders are working more and older people are working longer? What are some of the issues that you and your partner are trying to figure out? How do you make it work? Which career comes first? Or maybe you didn't make it work and your relationship suffered because of your careers. Tell us. Send us a voice memo to zigzag at stableg.com. That's zigzag at stableg, the letter, dot com. We would love to hear from you. Oh, and if you're wondering where Jen is, my co-founder, never fear, she will be back big time on the next episode of ZigZag. For now, though, she asked me to ask you, please tell someone about the podcast. It's how we grow. We need your help to do it. And thank you. ZigZag comes from Stable Genius Productions. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant with help from Marcy Thompson. Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio is our engineer and sound designer. David Herman is our composer. Maria Wartell is our production coordinator. Many thanks to Anya Zhezik for her audio engineering, too. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Oh, I do have one last question. Is it okay for us? I mean, I feel like I need to definitely ask your permission. May we use some of the music that's online in this episode? You absolutely can, but there are lots of curse words, so be careful. We're, we're cool with that. <laughs>